Well, good evening, everyone. Good to see you. Um, minute or two, we'll probably have a couple of folks drift in, so that's okay. Um, let me go through a couple of disclaimers that I, I did the first week and I skipped the second week. Uh, by the way, so not to embarrass anybody, Rue's not embarrassable, but Rue and Robert, my, our, uh, two of our neighbors, are here tonight. So some of, a lot of you met Rue uh, while Robert was in California visiting family. Uh, so good to have you guys back. Um, first of all, I don't, pro, uh, I don't uh, profess is the word. Thank you. Fred wasn't here and you stepped right in. Uh, I don't profess any expertise in any of the things I talk about. Uh, so if you have a different opinion on something I might say, that's totally fine. Uh, I've got no problem with that whatsoever. Uh, um, it's 50 minutes and it's about 70 slides, so we've, we've, we're traveling pretty quick. And because of that, uh, please, no questions uh, or comments because I just cannot get through the material uh, if we interrupt to try to deal with some things. If you do have a question or comment, please uh, see me afterwards and that, that'll be just fine. Uh, one more session after tonight, looking at uh, apes and uh, cavemen and us, plan to, Lord willing, next week. So uh, that's, that's on plan for, for then. Uh, tonight, it's about, obviously, evolution, the fossil record. This is such a huge area. Uh, there are all kinds of opinions all over the place on this. Uh, I want to try to shed some light uh, on some areas that I hope uh, will be helpful to you. Um, with... When you're covering a topic that's really large and that there are very extreme differences in opinion and positions on that, uh, it's impossible to, uh, to cover the material and, and, uh, and not contradict someone because things that I believe are in direct contradiction with some things some other folks believe. And so that's the nature of when you're looking at a controversial area. I just will say no intent to uh, demean or be uh, derogatory toward anyone, but um, where there are some differences, we will uh, point those out, and then you can Google whatever you want to Google and, uh, and that sort of thing and, and come to your own conclusions. Let's have, a, let's have a prayer, and we'll get started. Dear Father, we're grateful for the day. I'm thankful for this time. Uh, thank you, Father, for what you have created we're grateful for Jesus. We're grateful that we can, uh, that you've given us the ability to appreciate in a small way what you've done and how much you care for us. Pray that as we live, we'll come to appreciate that more. Uh, we um, ask your blessings, Father, on many uh, family concerns with different ones tonight. And um, you know all of those concerns, and I ask your blessings uh, on their behalf. And so we thank you for our time and ask your blessings in this matter. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Okay, so the evolution question, it is a big mixture of, uh, there's a big mixture of thoughts and ideas on it. Uh, and that's the problem. Uh, there are sets of facts and then there are a lot of uh, assumptions and speculation and theory and then there's, uh, so... It's all over the place. People usually, uh, one of the first things I hear about, someone says, well, what about the dinosaurs? So we'll, we'll deal with that right away. Won't take long. Uh, so there you go. Uh, the real reason dinosaurs became extinct. And uh, I always liked the far side. And uh, I think he hit it maybe. It's either that or the comet, I'm not sure, or the flood or whatever. Um, Evolution, there, uh, one other thing here, there uh, have been a lot of uh, evolutionary experiments through the years, and some, when some organisms have developed in a kind of a, a, an offshoot way that was not beneficial, they 
have just uh, sort of gone by the wayside. One of those was the Billy Bob Hound. <laughs> and that, that, uh, that particular breed did not, did not survive. <laughs> sort of like me, they were just lucky to get a mate. <clears throat> okay, so in 2014, Neil deGrasse Tyson on Cosmos, some of you may have seen that, it's produced by National Geographic and Fox, makes this statement. He says, nobody knows how life got started. Maybe someone that's watching this show will find that answer in, uh, in likeness. How life began. <clears throat> no one knows. That's his comment. So the thing is, um, so many times in the education process, in college, uh, in high school, and in junior high, uh, <clears throat> the evolution thing is sort of presented like, Look, that is settled science, and um, we're here as the result of the evolutionary process. And uh, the big thing that happens is nobody knows what started life. How did it start? Now, we know, but when you're coming from the secular position, which he is coming from, it's a mystery. Do not know how it started. And at least they're honest about that. And we'll come back to that in a, uh, a little bit later down the road. Uh, so here's what you get into. Meet Saccharitis uh, carnarius, humans, earliest known ancestors. Um, I'll just go ahead and read the, this part. I, I don't do this well for the folks that are listening in on the podcast. <clears throat> I'll try to keep you a little more tuned in this time. But the artist, so here's a picture of a very small critter, the artist's rendering of Saccharitis coronarius, a microfossil. That means a microbe. That means you can't see it with your naked eye. Uh, found in the Shanxi province in central China, probably only one millimeter in size, 540 million year uh, old deuter uh, deuterostome. The creature is thought to have been, notice that, the creature is thought to be the common ancestor of a huge range of species, the earliest step yet discovered in the evolutionary path that eventually led to man. Now, the thing is this. You get headlines like the one you're looking at, humans' earliest known ancestor, if you're coming from the position that there is no creator, there is no God, we got here by chance chemical reactions, uh, which started in the, the, in the sloshing together of seawater, some microbes, one-celled animals were formed, and then multicellular animals came from those. That's sort of the logical fallback of where you're going to come from. If you're not considering the option that God created, that there is a creator, then you're in this position. Now, the thing about this, that it's very bad science because there is no connection whatsoever with a microbe and a, and a mammalian chordate, which we are. No evolutionary link whatsoever. It's just an assumption that is made. Look, the secular, the secular movement is very aggressive, uh, extremely aggressive about getting us here somehow from things like this. Like that. Um, assumptions are made and no, don't worry about the facts. We'll figure that out later. Let's just go ahead. And, and so the thing that happens, and uh, people see uh, TV shows and magazines and newspaper articles, and, and much of America just says, well, some scientists came up with this. It must be true. Look, it's printed here. Here's a picture of it. It's an artist, artist's rendering. It's not even a picture of the thing. But people just take that, and it has, it has an influence. Um, the conclusion when the foregone premise is all life came from a single, uh, from single cell forms, you get this, this is the position you arrive at. No science involved in it whatsoever. No scientific method here involved in this. Just an assumption thrown out for public consumption. Uh, 
We had this, and then we had that. How did we go in the universe from nothing existing to the first Adam? Atoms are not just simple things that just happen. They are highly organized. Every element has its own atomic structure, and the nuclei and the electron configurations involved in all these things are very specific, very orderly. One of the reasons, by the way, to believe in God is there is extreme order, a law of order in the universe. It's amazing. But an atom's extremely orderly, precise, how did it get put together from nothing by chance? There is no answer in science for that. There's no answer. So we go from that. Secular science says we go from nothing to the atom to ultimately, <clears throat> they're estimating now somewhere around 60 million different species. Uh, most of the insect species have not been described and cataloged. And certainly most of the microscopic species have not even been discovered. But the thing about all these different millions and millions of species is that they each have their own genetic code. They each have a genome, a genetic code. It is precise. It is stable. It is replicating. And they continue to produce offspring after their kind. Very precise, very organized how did all of this happen? We are told secular evolution says that from nothing we have moved to perfectly balanced and complex atoms to incredibly precise replicating DNA to living cells with numerous balanced interacting biochemical systems. Uh, that's the thing about life. Um, there are there are many systems going on within each cell, but certainly within each organism that are inter interdependent and interacting with each other. They're coming from completely different places in the biochemistry that's involved, but they're balanced and interacting. Uh, Charles Darwin had no idea about how complicated a living cell is. Of course, he couldn't. He wasn't, electron microscopes weren't around. So how would he know? Much more complicated than he would know. And so millions of separate, distinct plant and animal species with incredible complexity, all of that by chance, some unexplained process, and it just happened from compounds that came from we don't know where. So that's, <clears throat> that's what we're asked to believe as opposed to the possibility of, I'm looking at so much stuff here, I think I'm seeing design. And if there's design, that means there's a designer. They do not consider that. Here's the point. I want you to know that your position of faith, of belief in God, of belief in a designer is extremely logical and based on solid foundations. We're not having, you talk about leap of faith. The leap of faith is, is to think that all of that happened from a single cell animal. Evolution, let's look at that for a moment. It's not a bad word. A lot of times religious folks look at it like it is a very, it's not a bad word. It just means to change. Colorado Springs has changed dramatically over the last, oh, over the last 40, 50 years. My, I have a friend in Searcy that grew up here that graduated about the time Frederick did over there. He, he told me just before we moved out here last year that uh, Colorado Springs was about 80,000 when he graduated from high school. So now we're looking at an area of 700,000. So things change. Not a bad word. Does biological evolution or change occur? Yes, it does occur. Let's just keep thinking about this. Organisms do adapt. They do change within types. I'm talking about within family, genus, species, groupings. 
Changes do occur. That's the genius of adaptability that's built in to the creation. Flexibility, the ability to adapt and survive. Example, there are races, uh, species, subspecies of cattle, livestock, pets, plants, flowers, crops that exist today that did not exist 200 years ago, did not exist 100 years ago, did not exist 50 years ago. Our little buddies, uh, the Shelties, they uh, became a species of about 1903. 1800, or President Lincoln in 1860, he didn't have a Sheltie in the White House. Didn't have one. So there is a, there is a built-in ability in living organisms to adapt and change. Lot was uh, interbreeding his cattle there with Abraham and Lot way back when and getting a better grade of livestock. So things can change within, within parameters. There is a, an adaptability built in. Living organisms were, are built with the flexibility to change within limits. Now, w when we start talking about the theory of organic evolution, we're talking about a different ballgame altogether. Darwin's uh, proposition is that all life forms came from original, single-celled ancestors, all life forms. And over long periods of time, random genetic mutations caused changes. Individuals with the most advantageous changes were more successful, and so they were naturally selected to reproduce more than the ones that did not have those changes, and gradually that uh, resulted in more advanced forms, and animals just started changing and becoming this and that and the other over a long period of time. That's basically the theory. We all came from a single cell, and here's the thing, nobody yet has figured out how the, uh, number one, where the single-celled organism, how it was put together, and number two, how it became a multi-celled organism. Two pretty big questions, no answers. But the theory calls for everything that you see, plant and animal, to have come from a single cell. Uh, so we're going to look at that a little bit. Uh, first, the first question, and I just referred to that basically, where'd the single cell come from? It does not explain origins. And then another, another big concern is that this, to make this assumption greatly oversimplifies the complicated process we're talking about. Of course, again, Darwin had no idea about how complex DNA is, how complex the cell is, and what's involved in going on with all of that. He didn't know all of that. And so he comes up with a theory that just overstates a very precise and complicated process, uh, assuming that it, this could happen. Uh, there are a lot of reasons it can't. We'll look at that as we go forward. He had two vehicles for evolution to occur uh, through, natural selection and genetic mutation. Those were his two vehicles. About natural selection, the premise is that individuals in a population that are highly, uh, slightly bigger, stronger, faster, and all that are selected by nature to survive. They're better fitted to compete than those animals that are not as fast or as strong or as quick or whatever. So the weaker groups die off, the stronger ones reproduce, and they become more populous, and so the population starts to change with the stronger animals. There's a couple of concerns, a couple of caveats. When I was growing up, no one ever said caveat. Didn't say it. And everybody fell in love with that word about 15 years ago. And the next thing you knew, everybody's talking about caveats. That's for free. I just thought I'd throw that in. You may be the only one, Fred, you and, you and me. Natural selection is about competition in a population. It has nothing to do with the mechanics of the chemical processes with the genetics that are going on. Natural selection is a phenotypic, it is a physical thing, it is about competition. The faster gets to the food. The stronger pushes the weaker away and gets to the food. And he then is able to reproduce. That natural selection does not 
form new organs. It does not make chemical changes in the genetic code. It is not a process of changing one kind of animal into another kind of animal. It only works with whatever genetics are in the kind that is competing. So natural selection is not a tool for genetic change, for evolution. Uh, let's see. Genetic mutations. Okay. So this is, the big, this is the big thing here in the theory. Changes in genes of a chromosome produce new or enhanced traits affected organisms outcompete the other members in the species, survive, mutations continue, and things start, start to change. That's assuming that the animal's going to change into another kind of animal eventually. Now here's a couple of things about that. First of all, genetic mutations are rare. They occur about in a gene about one time in, uh, out of every 10 million DNA replications. About one time out of every 10 million replications. So they're not that common. The overwhelming majority of mutations are harmful. You know, you go to the dentist and they, they slap a, a lead a lead sheet over you just when they're going to x-ray your teeth. They don't want you to get too many x-rays. And you, you get your caution about this or that, about having too many, because radiation can cause mutations. And mutations tend to cause disease. So we don't, we try to avoid things that we know cause mutations. But mutations are the building block that Darwin had to count on to get new animals. The problem is most mutations are harmful. They're not beneficial. They're not a building block. Now, it gets worse if you'll read with me inside the box. So evolution theory requires mutations, first of all, not be directed. So they've got to be totally random. That's a problem. Having a series of related positive mutations on the same gene to produce some new feature becomes problematic. It becomes a concern of probabilities. It becomes a mathematical situation. Since mutations occur one in every 10 million reproductions, the odds are one in 10 to the seventh power. If we were going to have three in a row, let's say we're going to try to change some organ, a lobe fin into an arm, a leg. We're going to have to have a lot of successive positive focus mutations to get that thing to happen because you've got to change muscle structure, innervation, blood vessel flow. You've got to put a joint in there, one at the wrist, one at the elbow or knee. You've got to make a lot of changes to make that advancement. So you've got to have a lot of positive coordinated mutations. The thing is about evolution, it can't be coordinated. It's random. Mutations have to be random. But if we were only going to have three, let's say, let's just have three in order to make some change. One in 10 to the seventh times 10 to the seventh times 10 to the seventh. Now you add the exponents, so you get one times one times one, which is one in 10 to the 21st power. That's one in a sextillion times. Billion, million, billion, trillion, quadrillion, quintillion, sextillion, 21 zeros. To get three mutations successively in the same location, that'd be your odds of getting three in a series. It just gets out of reason. And that's just trying to do three. Can you imagine what you've got to do to get 60 million different species, all with their own organ systems, their own setup, their own skeletal or, if no skeleton, their own set of uh, systems to provide circulation, respiration, reproduction, and on and on. Highly, highly complex. It just is too much. But that's... That's the only card that secular evolution has to use. So the argument becomes, well, if you're given enough time 
It's bound to happen eventually. We just don't have that much time. Uh, if it didn't happen in 15 billion years, the odds of it happening are just as bad 15 billion years from now as they were 15 billion years ago. The odds didn't change. They're still just as bad. I want to show this again. We looked at this last week, but it really shows the point. Let's see. Okay. George Wall, Nobel Prize winner in physiology, Harvard professor. There are only two possibilities, he said, as to how life arose. One is spontaneous generation arising to evolution. The other is the creative act of God. Spontaneous generation that life arose from non-living matter was disproved 120 years ago by Pasteur and others. That leaves us with only the only possible conclusion that life arose by the supernatural creation of God. Because he says spontaneous generation does not work. It is impossible. Then he goes on. Creative act of God, I will not accept that philosophically. Can't accept it, he said, because I do not want to believe in God. So there's the problem. His problem against creation is not the science of creation. His problem against creation is that he does not want to believe in God. So his position is, as a Nobel Prize winner, I will accept a position that I am telling you is, I know is impossible. But that's what he said he'd go with. Too many evolution is a religion. It is. It is a worldview that's not, it's, there's a lot of science in it, a lot of good science in it. But it makes some large assumptions that are not supported that would be so much easier, easily uh, answered by saying, to me, design is pretty obvious. And if design a designer, it becomes an emotional resistance that they, that they have. Okay, so Ben Stein had the movie Expelled, Intelligence, No Intelligence Allowed, about 11 years ago. Saw it, pretty, did a pretty good job with it. So he's interviewing Richard Dawkins, who is a leading evolutionary um, exponent. And so Stein says, where'd the first living cells come from? Dawkins says, from a self-replicating cell. Where did that come from? And so Dawkins' response is, like Neil deGrasse Tyson's was at the first of the presentation tonight. We don't know. Nobody knows. There is no answer. There is no scientific answer for us, for us being here out of nothing. How life got started. That doesn't give me a lot of comfort. They're asking me to put my faith in that position. And there's a, there's a historical record. There is a book that has a historical record of another system, of a figure in history that came to the earth that was seen and touched and felt and that lived that offers a better answer than these guys. So you've got a secular philosophical assumption. Group think. It's very big in much of the scientific community. I'll tell you, personal experience, two degrees in biology, I don't know much. That's pretty obvious. Fred, resist. I had uh, one of the common things uh, professors uh, would say in school, particularly graduate school, such and such gave rise to this, gave rise to that, gave rise to that. Those, that was the catchphrase, gave rise. And that was supposed to mean uh, this, this animal produced this different kind of animal. This was the stem animal, the stem organism to this new organism. It gave rise. 
They never said how it did it. They never explained the process, the genetic process of how you changed organism from one kind to another kind. Never, ever. Because they don't know. They do not know. So let's look at some evolutionary examples. Here's one, the horse. Eohippus to Mesohippus to Merychippus to Equus. All in the family Equity, the genus Equus. Talking right down Don McGinney's alley now. You've already spoken once tonight. Don't, don't, don't speak up anymore, please. No, please do if, if you see something I mess up. They're all horses. They went from small horse-like animals to larger ones. The biggest change was in the feet. It was in multiple toes to only three toes to two toes to one hoof. From small to big. All horses. They didn't become bovine. They didn't become parissal, uh, uh, no, they're perissodactyls, so they didn't become artiodactyls, they didn't become proboscideans, elephants. They didn't do it. They stayed horses, kind after kind. Darwin's finches. Darwin made a lot of mileage out of the fact that the different finches on the Galapagos Islands, there were numerous kinds of different finches. He says this is an example of evolution. Well, it is. Microevolution. Radiation. Speciation. Change within limits. Changes to fit different niches, different kinds of beaks. But they're all finches. They're still birds. They're still finches. They adapted in small ways. Microevolution occurs, I believe. I think the finches are pretty good proof of that. By the way, going back to the Shelties, Noah didn't have them on the ark either. He had a dog kind, canine kind. I don't think he had poodles and St. Bernard's. And on and on and on and on and on. He might have had two wolves. He might have had a couple of foxes. I don't know if it was just one dog kind or two. But he didn't have, how many breeds of dogs are there? You may know that. She's a trainer. There's a gazillion. There's a bunch of different dog breeds. He didn't have them all on the ark. So, so the canine family has changed through time and adapted, and different species have rolled out. But they're all still dogs, kind after kind. That's how the Scripture talks about it as well, kind after kind. Molecular biochemistry, too complex for the, any evolutionary model. So Franklin Howard, and notice where he's from, Cal Berkeley, uh, not known as a theological center. Uh, so I make this point to say he's not coming uh, to us. Uh, this is not coming out of a religious uh, enclave per se. But he's professor at Cal Berkeley, biochemistry, and he says this, We must concede there are presently no detailed Darwinian accounts of the evolution of any fundamental biochemical or cellular system, only a variety of wistful speculations. No detailed Darwinian accounts of the evolution of any fundamental biochemical or cellular system. Franklin Howard, Ph.D., Cal Berkeley. Don't feel like, as a person of faith, that you have to take a position of being ignorant. Now, I said a while ago, I'm not very smart, and I'm not. But I don't have to feel just uninformed on this subject. There are a lot of people much more educated than I am in this area. But I can read what some of them say, 
And what they say is sort of, I'm glad to hear them say that because it's sort of what I think. And I'm glad to have their expertise backing up our position of faith. Let's go on. Comparative morphology has been used as an example of evolution. And look at this. So whether you're talking about a bird wing, a bat, human arm, a whale flipper, or whatever it is, a dog's leg or a horse's or whatever, there is a certain pattern. There is a large bone, whether it's arm or leg, it's a large bone. There are two smaller bones, and then there's some metacarpals or metatarsals. said that backwards, metacarpals and metatarsals. And phalanges. It's a similar pattern in any vertebrate. And the vertebrates are not connected. They're not necessarily related. Lions are not in the same genotype as frogs, other than being chordates, animals with backbones. They're in different classes. So what was the common source? There's obviously a common source here. It's either blind chance or it's a designing mind. Look, we have limited intelligence, but we have some. And so when we want to build a structure, depending on the use for that structure, we take a basic pattern and we adapt it for the use. If it's for the dog, it's all the same. We have a roof, we have sides to make a compartment, and we have an entrance. So we take that basic plan and we use it for the birdhouse, we use it for the dog, we use it for the privy, and we use it for the cabin that we live in. A common source, these things uh, bear resemblance. The common source is intelligence, not chance. The common source is a planning, designing intelligence, not chance. So that proves nothing to me other than there's a common source. And so then it becomes, is the source chance or planning? I submit to you that planning is a better way of looking at it. By the way, there's no, if it, if it was all by chance, there's no reason any two of those would come out similar to each other if it's all by chance. They'd all be different. It's a designing intelligence. It is counterintuitive to suggest that specific complex functional design ever happened one time by chance, much less over and over and over and over. No. No. If you're listening to this, we're looking at the earth, the fish skeleton, the human res uh, circulatory system, the eyeball, and the DNA molecule. Let's look at DNA just for a moment. Uh, we got twenty. We got twenty-three minutes. Stay with me on this, please. This is pretty mind-boggling. Chromosomal DNA. In the nucleus of a cell approximately six feet long, wrapped up in the nucleus of a cell, the nucleus is only six thousandths of a millimeter across in diameter. Six thousandths of a millimeter, you can't see it with your naked eye, but inside of it, it has six feet of DNA coiled up in there. And that DNA is not just a string. It is full of chemical bonds of different compounds. The building block of DNA, the nucleotide basis, there are four letters, basically, that we go by. We're looking at, okay, look at adenine there and right beside it, thymine. Adenine always pairs with thymine in DNA. And you see the, the structure, the uh, chemical structure of adenine, thymine's right beside it. So all of that's on a, just on a point in that chromosome. Now, if we looked at a larger section of the chromosome, like inside the box there, the letters represent these four compounds. The chromosome language alphabet is made up of four letters in DNA. 
adenine, thymine, guanine, cytosine. That's the four-letter alphabet for DNA. All your cells have it. The way it is arranged determines what it is your cell is going to do, what proteins it's going to produce, the way these letters are arranged. It's in order like words. There's 640 base pairs of nucleotides on the screen you're looking at, 640. The average gene is from 27,000 to 2 million. Uh, the point is, that's, there's a lot of words. There's a lot of letters. Now, here's the thing. Read, watch this. Nucleotide bases are precisely ordered to form a thumbnail, an earlobe, an iris of an eye, an artery, a kneecap, a hair follicle, a knuckle in the little finger, produce hormones, salivary gland, words, codes that must be in exact order to work. Do you see the last four words there? If you start mixing the letters of the sequence of the nucleotides, you're going to get an eyebrow on your elbow. That's what's going to happen. Right, Drew? Drew says, yeah. Can't change this. This is orderly. This, these are words. The words we use have letters that make them make sense if they're in order. But if you start changing the order of the letters and the words that you're writing or speaking, you get nonsense. You get mutations. You get harmful effects that do not function. That's what you get. Mutations are not building blocks. So genetic nucleotide bases precisely ordered. Chance cannot arrange the order of this magnitude. It is complex design is what it is. Psalms 139, the psalmist says, You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Knitted together. Nucleotide by nucleotide in every gene. Miracle of birth. Incredible. Francis Collins, the director of the Human Genome Project, which was completed in the year 2000, Francis Collins from Yale, his statement when they're at the press conference announcing the completion of the human genome mapping, it is humbling for me and awe-inspiring to realize that we have caught the first glimpse of our own instruction book previously known only by God. Design. He saw, he saw so much. He saw so many of these nucleotides in order, functioning. He said, that's design. Okay, let me speed up. Anthony Flew, very famous evolutionist during the 20th century, changed his mind in 2004. And his statement was this, a superintelligence is the only good explanation for the origin of life and the complexity of nature. The biological investigation of DNA has shown that by almost unbelievable complexity of the arrangements which are needed to produce life, that intelligence must have been involved. So he changed his position. He said, go where the evidence leads. And finally, it just piled up so much, unlike George Wald, who said, I just can't believe that because I don't want to. Anthony Flew said, there's only one answer here. Too much evidence. Too much organization. Dean Kenyon Ph.D., biophysics, Stanford. We have not the slightest chance of a chemical evolutionary origin for even the simplest of cells. Bill Gates. Human DNA is like a computer program, but far, far more advanced than any software ever created. 
As David said, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. In the case of some of us, it's just fearfully. (laughs) Fearfully and wonderfully made. Wow. The more we learn, the more complicated we see it is, and the more organized we see it is, the more amazing it is. Information, another thing to think about. we got about 11 minutes. Information as found in code or instruction or messaging which transmits meaning never comes from chance. Information never comes from chance or random movement of matter because information has messaging, content to be understood, a code to be delivered with content to be understood and acted upon. Information is only produced by intelligent activity. And DNA code is cellular messaging information which instructs cell activity. It is a specific code for specific enzymes, hormones, proteins to do different things. It is specific information that the cell carries out when it receives those instructions. That's why it's called code. Code does not happen by chance. Code is the result of design. Michael Behay, known for introducing the concept of irreducible complexity, he said evolution can't produce an irreducibly complex biological machine suddenly all at once. There's too much to it, for example. So you've got a cell, and you've got, if you can see, a DNA molecule over there. The DNA is in the nucleus of the cell. Now, here's the thing. DNA cannot exist by itself. It only exists in the nucleus of a cell. A cell, with all of its organelles, with all of its functions, it, can, it is dead without the DNA. So you've got DNA, which is extremely complex. You've got a cell, which is extremely complex, and they are mutually dependent. They have to exist together. They had to come together at the same time. They couldn't wait for one to evolve while the other was sitting around. Irreducibly complex. Many, 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 many steps and components that have to come together at the same time. Behe goes on to say the audacious claim of Darwinian evolution is that it can put together complex systems with no intelligence at all. That is pretty audacious. We have no working model or scientific roadmap for the gradual development or evolution of any biochemical system. Now, to the fossil record. Nine minutes. The number of intermediate varieties, Darwin said, which have formerly existed on the earth must be truly enormous. Intermediate varieties. Why then is not every geological and every stratum, every geological layer and every stratum full of such intermediate links. Why aren't all those examples there? Because the record should be full of them. If life gradually started coming and differentiating and becoming everything else as it gradually was happening, then we should have in the rocks all kinds of intermediates. There should be more intermediates than actually organisms. Geology, he said, geology assuredly does not reveal any such finely graduated organic chain. And this perhaps is the most obvious and gravest objection that can be urged against my theory. Pretty grave objection. Niles Eldridge was uh, foremost uh, during the 20th century one of the top evolutionary spokespeople, scientists, worked at the American Museum of Natural History. And then his work put out in 1998 on the the absence of transitionals, he said this, it is a simple ineluctable truth that virtually all members of a biota remain basically stable with minor fluctuations throughout their duration, throughout their geologic history. He says... 
everything stays the same. Cows are still cows. Canines are still canines. Finches are still finches. Meerkats are still meerkats. He is an evolutionist. And he says, nothing's really changing in the rocks. He came up with a theory called punctuated equilibrium, which said you have long periods of stasis in the evolution, in the rocks, in the geology, and then things, you have big changes all of a sudden, and then you have another long period of stasis, and you have big changes. He's trying to respond to what they saw in the rocks where, where nothing was changing into something else. You just have these huge changes that occur. So he tried to compensate it for that, that way. It is not gradual uh, formation of new life forms. They're not changing into new kinds during the length of their appearance. Okay, so here's what you've got in a basic evolutionary tree, the diagram. You'll see that uh, behind the names of the different life forms, most of what you're looking at is dots. The dots mean we don't have the connections. We only have the solid lines, but we don't have all the connecting links to link everything together. The evidence is not in the fossil record. They're not connected. We can't find the connections. Commenting on this, the very top evolutionist of the 20th century, Steve, uh, Stephen Gould, also at the American Museum of Natural History, his comment is this, the extreme rarity of transitional forms in the fossil record persists as the trade secret of paleontology. The evolutionary trees that adorn our textbooks have data only at the tips and nodes of the branches. The rest is inference, in other words, speculation, not the evidence of the fossils. He says it's full of gaps. The connecting fossils are not there. There's your tree. Kirkett said the relationship between the simplest living forms is not clear at all. We cannot say with any certainty how they evolved. And then uh, in the uh, book, Origin and Early Evolution of the Metazoa. Metazoa simply means multicellular animals, organisms. The emergence of the Metazoa remains the salient mystery of the history of life. We don't know where the first multicellular organisms came from, the invertebrates. We looked at uh, Sarcoritis early, earlier. That was a Metazoan, little bagworm type thing. And so the book said, we don't know how they came into existence. We don't have a link between the multicellular organisms, invertebrates, and the protozoans. We don't know. There's no evidence. We, we don't have the thing. So this is pushed at us like it's all settled science, and what, when you get to looking at it in the details, not so much. Early layers of rocks. So the earliest layer of rocks that has life in it is the Cambrian layer. Then you come on up, and I've got about four, four strata listed there. Genesis 1.20, God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. Let the waters swarm. When we look at the rocks, when we look at the Cambrian layer, we have what is known as the Cambrian life burst, an explosion of life forms in the Cambrian layer in the waters. We found nearly every invertebrate phylum, all the major phylum, in the Cambrian layer, all separate, all distinct the first time they appear. They're all of a sudden there. A.L. McAllister, Archie Lee McAllister, says this in his book, A History of Life, Evolutionist. Fortunately for our understanding of invertebrate evolution, the phyla have an excellent fossil record. Unfortunately, there is no fossil record of their origin. They suddenly, they are already clearly separate and distinct 
when they first appear. Jonathan Wells, Cal Berkeley again. He is a religious fellow. He says this, this is, ab there, this is absolutely contrary, this life burst, to Darwin's tree of life. These animals, which are so fundamentally different in their body plans, appear fully developed. All of a sudden, the single most spectacular phenomenon in the fossil record. Boom. Let the water swarm. Richard Dawkins, very adamant anti-religionist. He says the Cambrian layer of rocks are the oldest ones in which we find most of the major invertebrate groups. And we find many of them already in advanced state of evolution the very first time they appear. It is though they were just planted there without any evolutionary history. Needless to say, this appearance of sudden planting has delighted the creationist. In the words of the 19th century philosopher Josie Wales, I reckon so. <laughs> Feel quite delighted. The mystery of the evolution of the class of mammalia. We're supposed to, all the mammals we're supposed to have come from, what they're telling us in the text, all from a two-inch shrew. This little less-than-a-mouse critter being the stem mammal for every kind of mammal that exists, whales, elephants, giraffes, lions, everything. There are about 23 orders of mammals depending on how you split a few of them. The shrew, the problem is, can't find the links back to the shrew. No transitionals, no links are known. Each order is fully developed the first time it appears in the fossil record. So this is, there's about 15 or so of them I have listed there. And when they first appear in the rocks, uh, they're fully developed in their own form. There's no linkage between any of them to each other, all separate. Sounds like creation. Okay, we just got two or three slides left, so we're wrapping up two minutes. This is interesting. McAllister again. Vertebrates certainly arose from some sort, whoa now, some sort? Not sounding too confident to me. Vertebrates certainly arose from some sort of invertebrate ancestor. But as is so often the case, the exact ancestral group is uncertain. Certainly. The fossil record provides no clues because the earliest fossil groups are already fully differentiated from their invertebrate ancestors. Our knowledge of the origin must therefore depend entirely upon indirect evidence. Indirect evidence. That means somebody thinks something must have happened. Indirect evidence is not evidence. There is no fossil evidence for the origin of the vertebrates. No fossil evidence. Three points in conclusion. Christian faith in a designing creator is consistent with the geologic and fossil records. Life suddenly appears, not gradually. Diverse life forms are fully developed and complete. For the most part, potential intermediates are missing. DNA code, cell structure, the myriad of complex and sophisticated biological systems and organisms testify to design rather than chance. Functional design, complex specificity and information, DNA code, all of those result from intelligent planning. Complex design never comes from chance or functional design, Com specificity, complex specificity never comes from chance. Information never comes from chance. It comes from planning. 
So God, Genesis 1, 21 through 26, God created all aquatic life, birds of the air, everything that moves on the land according to their kinds. According to kinds. And um, taxonomic families, orders, classes, fully separate when they first appear in the fossil record. And God made man in his image, or verse 26 says, let us make man in our image. A spiritual component. There you go. That's for you, Fred. Happy trails, folks. Hey, I'm Eddie White, the senior minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you. I'd like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs every Sunday at 1040 a.m. as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.